Is Jesus really the only way to God? How can a loving God save some and not others? What would Jesus say to my LGBTI friends? Can I trust the Bible? How can a good God allow suffering? How can I find God's will for my life? Can I lose my faith and what can I do to grow it? If God is sovereign, do we actually have free will? How would a Christian approach sex and dating? Can women lead in the church? You're listening to the Caroline Springs Anglican Podcast. Hey, it's great to see you here this morning. It's always great to see you here, but I'm really glad that God has brought you here, particularly this week. I I had this experience over and over again this week where I just put my head down on the desk and prayed that God would bring you here because I believe this message this morning is so important for us to hear. It's really important not just because there's a lot of confusion around what the answer to this question might be, but it's so important because it speaks to us of our, of our, our very salvation. And if salvation, eternity, is the most important thing that there is, and it is, then this is a very important question for us to engage with. So I just want to implore you this morning to stay engaged uh, throughout. Um, I'm going to be speaking uh, to kind of four points, each of which have a ton of scripture. In fact, most of the talking I'm going to be doing is probably just reading scripture for us. Um, Then, by way of response, we're going to come around with a microphone and we're going to be asking you, what are you doing right now to help persevere you in faith? That's a word that's going to come up more than any other word this morning, perseverance. Uh, We get this idea of perseverance or the doctrine of perseverance that um, it's the doctrine that tells us how Christians go from becoming Christians to remaining Christians day by day until they die or Jesus calls them home. And so it's important that we clarify, first of all, perseverance um, is an active word. Perseverance is not about sitting back and riding along. It's about acting. It's about doing It's about striving. And so we're going to be asking you the question, what are you doing to strive to maintain your faith from day to day? And there are people here this morning who need to hear your response to that question. So if you're kind of a little bit nervous about speaking out loud in front of everyone, just get over that for the sake of people who need something extra to hold on to this morning, to tether them to the kingdom, all right? Um, and then throughout, we're going to be asking you to text in your questions, uh, and we'll do a little Q&A um, before we're done here this morning, all right? So as I'm spending this week thinking about this question, dropping my head on the desk, praying that God would bring you here this morning, I have you in mind, this church in mind, obviously, but I also had two, two men in mind, and uh, neither of them come to our church, but they might just be listening online, so... You know who you are. But I had, I had two guys. One, one man has all of his life experienced deep brokenness. So he was given up by his parents when he was born, went into foster care, and from foster home to foster home, and at each and every station, he was abused, either sexually or physically. He ended up in jail. He has gone through three marriages, all ending in divorce, and he is a a broken man, obviously. 
He is the product of his upbringing, and he would be the first to say that he is a broken man. And, and one of the things that is true of him is that he finds it very, very hard to believe that God will still love him tomorrow. There's this great fear of abandonment because all of his life he's been abandoned. And so for him it's very, very difficult to believe that tomorrow or in six months or in six years that he will still be a Christian, that is, that God will still love him. I have another guy in mind as I'm writing this sermon and it's a man that I have sat with on a couple of occasions to plead with him to stop an extramarital affair that he's in the midst of. He claims Christ to be his Lord, his Saviour, but on a couple of occasions I've had to confront him with the reality of his sin, and on both occasions I have burned into my memory him sitting back like this and just telling me, it's cool, don't worry about it. And in his words, don't worry about it, God's got me. God's got me. So you have someone who's despairing of his assurance that God would keep him and still love him tomorrow, and you've got someone who is overly assured in the face of great danger. And the rest of us are probably somewhere in between on that spectrum. And I believe the Bible and the, 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 the word that I have to you this, for you this morning speaks to both people and everyone in between. So that's why I want you to be really, really attentive because you need to get all of this lest you get none of it. My four points, starting with point number one this morning. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. Each of these points is going to tell you to be something. I want you to get all of them. The first is be encouraged. God's people will, capital W-I-L-L, will persevere in faith. I've got about seven scriptures to demonstrate this truth this morning, okay? Be encouraged, be assured, be reassured. God's people will persevere in faith. And you can just cast your eyes to the screen. Uh, if you're really good at flicking through pages, then you could do that in the Bibles in front of you. Uh, you might even like to note some of these down to dwell on, maybe take to your small group during the week. But here, here are just seven of many to reassure us, all right? John chapter 6. And it's, uh, just to clarify, it's verse 37, 39 to 40, and 44. Jesus says, All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. That's the resurrection. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. In verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. 
I'm not going to speak specifically to these things. I'm just going to keep motoring through, so stay tuned in. Ephesians chapter 1. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Next one. 1 Peter chapter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Philippians chapter 1. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, stay with me. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Last one, John chapter 10. Hear the passion in Jesus' voice. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Scripture after Scripture assuring us and reassuring us that those who are called by God will persevere in faith. And the point in each of those, I hope you saw the pattern, is that the reason we have assurance is not because we are so strong and self-assured, but that it is God's power that is keeping us. We have the promise of the Holy Spirit. It's a seal, it's a guarantee that we will be kept. The reason that we are kept is because it's God's power that is shielding us, Peter says. And Jesus says the reason that we can be confident that we won't fall away from the faith is that his Father is more powerful than everyone else. If there's someone more powerful than God the Father, then we should be concerned. 
There might be someone who can rattle us, who can snatch us out of his hand. But Jesus says, the reason no one snatches you out of the Father's hand is because he has stronger grip than anyone else. So the first point, but not the last one, the first point is to be encouraged. Those who are called by God, those who have been adopted by God, will persevere in faith. That's why Jesus said in that passage, I give them eternal life. That's what you can claim this morning. Eternal life. That is not life that kind of mm, is up for grabs from day to day, but life that starts now and goes into eternity, you have possession of in this moment. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. So number one, be encouraged. Number two, just as important. Number two, be careful. Be encouraged. God's people will persevere in faith. Number two, be careful to persevere. We must not stray from the gospel. To persevere, we must not stray from the gospel. I remember as a kid growing up being consistently warned by the example of someone we called Auntie. I'll I'll leave the name out. We called, we called everyone auntie who was like close with our family, right? And she was a woman who had trained with my mum. My mum was a missionary and then became a chaplain, was training uh, to be a pastor in the Baptist church. And they had done some training together. And then my mum withdrew from that process for ordination. And this woman continued. And the, the story of warning was that this woman had gone through her entire theological education and had come out the other end an atheist. And, and so the warning was that it is possible to spend all of your time devoted to reading the scriptures and to being trained for ministry and to shipwreck your faith. And in her case, and in the case of many people who I know, and some colleges are very well adept at producing these atheists, Bible colleges, in every case they have abandoned the gospel. In every case they have started out clinging to the gospel and through a process have ended up abandoning this. We see this in whole churches, right? you just step back and look at a 50 or 100 or 500 year period, you can see whole churches and whole denominations going this way. Where do these Christians who have abandoned the gospel come from? They come from you. They come from me. They come from people who start out believing the gospel cherishing the gospel, clinging to the gospel, and then through a process that varies, they end up abandoning the gospel. They abandon the very thing that keeps them Christians. So the question for us this morning is, 
What is going to stop us from, in 50 years' time, being a church that has abandoned the gospel? You know there are churches like this, right? I can draw you a map within a stone's throw of this place, of churches who abandon the gospel, and yes, they're dying, but they're still kind of clinging on to some kind of life. Normally, it's a kind of social club. It's a place where people can come and hang out together or whatever it might be. But they're dying because they don't love the gospel, and it's the gospel that gives life to Christians and to Christian churches. So what's going to stop us? You need to think about this. If you're just here for for this morning, don't worry about this. But if you're here for the long term, if you want to see this place established firm in the gospel so that in 200 years' time people are being baptized on the stage, then, then listen, we need to figure this out. What's going to stop us going the way of so many churches and whole denominations? It's a very real danger. Be careful. In order to persevere, Christians and Christian churches must not stray from the gospel. Listen, just let me go through some passages. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. Right? So these are people, receive the gospel, take their stand on the gospel, and then he warns you, by this gospel you are saved if... You hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Otherwise, you have wasted your time. What a waste of time. Sunday mornings, freezing cold, sitting here, listening to someone yell. What a waste of time if you abandon the gospel. I'm thinking like big breakfast. No, I'm thinking night before getting wasted and then brunch, big breakfast. That's, that would be a better use of time if you abandon the gospel. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Next, John 8. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He's talking about the gospel. If you hold to the gospel, you're a disciple of Jesus, and if you hold to the gospel, you'll be set free. If. There's lots of ifs in these passages. What's next? Colossians 1. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. We must not move. We dare not move. And Jude gives a similar admonition. Jude 3, dear friends, this is the purpose for his letter. 
Although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, that was the letter he wanted to write, instead I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. First century, he's talking about the faith once for all delivered. Over the last 2,000 years, we've had a lot of departures from that. People who claim to be Christians, congregations claiming to be Christian churches who have departed from the faith once for all delivered. And this was happening from the beginning. Jude says, I wanted to just write you a letter and say, hey, hey, how good is the gospel that we all believe in? But he knows that's not the case. There are those who are departing from it. And so he says, For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people. They are people who go all the way through Bible college. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. That is, they deny the gospel and they take people down with them. Christian leaders denying the gospel, leading congregations of people into condemnation. Imagine putting that on your CV. I led 200 people to condemnation. Be encouraged. God's people will persevere in faith. Be careful. To persevere, we must not stray from the gospel. Number three, be warned. To persevere, we must live lives of holiness. To the, to the second man in the illustration I started out with, the man who was very blasé about his confidence that God would keep a hold of him even if he was in the midst of dire sin. To that man, and perhaps to some of us this morning, we need to say, be warned. Everyone just look at me right now because this is really important, right? There, there, there has been... There has been a very misleading picture of the Christian life that has been presented to many of us in the last couple of generations, and that is this. To be a Christian, you have to say the sinner's prayer, and then, nice one. And in that way of thinking, we view Christianity as an inoculation, right? It's a vaccine. When you were a little kid, you got jabbed with the measles vaccine, and now you don't get measles. When you were 17, you got jabbed with the gospel, and now you can't be condemned. That is not, that is not the picture of salvation that the Bible gives us. There has been a growing theology that denies the lordship of Jesus. For many of us, we have been taught that Jesus is our saviour. And therefore, we're all good. The truth is, Jesus is our Saviour and our Lord. He not only saves us from our sin, but he calls us to obedience. 
I was about to call out a famous preacher then, and I'm not going to do that. All right? I, hope, I hope it's enough just to give you the text. All right? So here we go. In order to persevere, we must live lives of holiness. Hebrews 12. Make every effort. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy without holiness. No one will see the Lord. Galatians 5. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Mark these. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, right? Some of us have been deceived. He says, don't be deceived. Holy Spirit, speak to us. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Ephesians chapter 5. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity, or of greed. Because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Verse 5. For of this you can be sure. Are we confused about this? Of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Be warned, brothers and sisters. God makes no false threats, and he is not mocked. Be warned. If this is an average gathering of people, an average gathering of Christians, there are some of us here this morning who are on the precipice. I've got a couple of questions that I'm anticipating. We're going to do Q&A later and address your questions. I've got my own couple of questions, all right? And I want to attempt to answer them. These are questions that should be coming to your mind. Question number one. If God's people will persevere in faith, why are there passages that warn against falling away from faith? That seems like a contradiction in terms. Point one. Be encouraged. God's people will persevere in faith. Point three. Be warned. God's people must 
persevere in holiness or must live lives of holiness. So if God's people will persevere in faith, why are there passages that warn against falling away from faith? Passages like Hebrews chapter 10. He says this, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So if God's people will persevere in faith and not fall away, why are there plain warnings in Scripture against God's people falling away? That is a good question because it kind of threatens point one, right? It threatens our sense of assurance as God's people that he will keep us. My answer to this question, I'm going to illustrate it with a story from the scriptures, but my answer to this question is simply that God uses means to keep us Christians. Remember, it's a false picture to say you got inoculated with the gospel and now you're fine. It's a false picture to think of salvation as a fire insurance policy against hell, right? You sign it off and then you spend your next 70 years doing whatever you want and as long as you present that thing at the end, right? That's a false picture. The real picture is one of perseverance. I, I, I don't use the terminology of once saved, always saved because it gives us that idea that it's passive, we just sit back and God will take us on the ride, right? This is not that kind of salvation. It is a persevering salvation. It is, like Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you must take up your cross daily and follow me. This is a daily fight. There's nothing passive about fighting. It is active and sweaty and bloody and the stakes are high. So in this active, persevering faith, God uses means to persevere us. To put it in theological terms, we believe that we believe in unconditional election, that before the foundation of the world we sang about in that first song, God chose you to be his treasured possession. This is all through the scriptures. Before you did anything good or bad, before the foundation of the world, God chose you. Unconditional election wasn't based on him looking forward in history and seeing that you would be a good person or a good church boy or girl. He did it unconditionally. We believe in unconditional election, but we don't believe in unconditional perseverance. Your perseverance is conditional on your faith, on your holiness. And God uses means to persevere you. He doesn't just leave you to strive and persevere. He is with you all the way, enabling your perseverance. Now, one of the means that he uses to persevere is to give you a church to gather with. Brothers and sisters, who according to the writer of Hebrews, are there to spur you on 
That's why he says, don't neglect to meet with one another, because he doesn't want you to end up in hell. Don't neglect to meet with one another, but rather spur one another on to love and good deeds. Spur one another on to perseverance. He uses means of grace like communion and the preaching of his word and prayer, gathering with God's people and accountability. And one of the means he uses to make sure you make it to heaven is by warning you against falling away. The warnings are a means that God uses to stop you from shipwrecking your faith. He uses warnings of his judgment on those who fall away so that you will not fall away. Let me illustrate this because it's all very abstract at this point, but I want to illustrate it with a piece of narrative from Acts. All right. So in Acts 27, you've got Paul and now Luke is with him who is writing the account. You've got Paul and Luke, they're on their way to Rome. Paul's going to testify in Rome, according to God's sovereign plan, to the grace of the gospel. And this is what happens on the way. They're in a ship, and they're making their way to Rome. Luke, the brilliant historian, records this in detail for us. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Right, so this is Paul and Luke and a bunch of pagan sailors on a ship going to Rome and they they're despairing. They think all is lost. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. All right, Paul. I told you so, right? What happened next? Okay, but now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of God, or of the Lord, to whom I belong and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men. For I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. This is some storm. When about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings and again found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved." And then they go on, they jump back in the ship, they obey what Paul says, they go on, they run aground, the ship gets broken up just as Paul says it would. And later on, 
I imagine them sitting around a fire, trying to dry out their, their clothes, and the, the question that any attentive sailor on that ship would have asked would be this. Paul, you said that God promised to keep us safe. The ship would be lost, but we would be kept safe. And then you said, when we were trying to escape, unless we stayed on the ship, we would be lost, we would die. So which is true? The promise or the warning? Is the promise true or the warning true? Are you, are you getting this? This, this, is, this is the whole thing. Is the promise that we would all be kept safe true or is the warning that we would all die true? And the truth is that they're both true. And the warning was God's means to achieve the promise. The warning was God's means to achieve his promise. That's exactly what the warnings in Scripture function to do for us who believe. You, a Christian, who are persevering day by day, trusting in Jesus, read the warnings of Scripture against shipwrecking your faith. And if you're a child of the living God, you read those warnings and are kept from shipwrecking your faith. And so the, the warnings are used by God to save you. Let me say it like this because I want to be really careful God's warnings don't contradict God's promises. They are means by which the promise is fulfilled. Next. God promises to keep us, but he doesn't do it in a vacuum. He uses means, one of which is a dreadful, is dreadful and emphatic warnings not to fall away. It's one of his means. The warnings aren't empty threats. God's people are kept in the faith by them. Others who are not true believers fall away, and so the warnings prove to be true. Whether these warnings are true for you or not entirely depends on whether you've been born again or not. So I love what Charles Spurgeon says, the great 19th century preacher. He says this, God preserves his children from falling away, but he keeps them by the use of means. And one of these is the terrors of the law, showing them what would happen, what would happen if they were to fall away. There is a deep precipice. What is the best way to keep anyone from going down there? Why? To tell him that if he did, he would inevitably be dashed to pieces. So God says, my child, if you fall over this precipice, you will be dashed to pieces. What does the child do? He says, Father, keep me. Hold thou me up and I shall be safe. That's the way a true believer responds to hearing the warnings of God's judgment on those who fall away. He or she says in prayer, Father, hold thou me up and I shall be safe. And so the warnings prove to be God's means to keep us along with the means of the prayer that we pray in response to hearing that warning.
That's question one. I've got another question. Question two is more of an experiential question. If God's people will persevere in faith, what happened to the people I know who have fallen away? What happened to the people I know who used to stand in this church and sing and praise God and now they don't claim any faith for themselves? What about them? Now first, just a word of warning that we never want to build our doctrine on our experience, right? Because our experience can be very subjective and your experience can be this, but mine contradicts yours. And so we don't want to, we don't want to build our doctrines on experience, but our experience does influence what we believe and how we believe it. So what about these people? I remember when Jimmy first started working here. We, uh, Jimmy f- f- first uh, actually just started, vo- moved over here and started volunteering and our hope was that one day he could take over and start a, a youth ministry from scratch. And it's a beautiful thing to be able to start something from scratch. Most often in church world, you're taking over something that's been going for 150 years and there are all these sacred cows and you've got to do stuff even though it's dumb and we just had a blank slate. There had never been any youth ministry in this place and it was a profound thing because Jimmy used to go to the youth group that I used to be uh, a pastor in and now he's sitting in my office and we're just dreaming about how to do youth group here at the church or just youth ministry in general And it was a very sobering thing for us to reflect on the youth group that Jimmy used to be a part of and then subsequently the one that he led and just how many of those kids who used to stand up the front and jump around and raise their hands in praise to God were now nowhere to be seen. And in fact, if you go down into the office, you'll see on his wall, Jimmy's wall, a picture taken of a couple of pictures of youth camps and He's just got red crosses through all of the people who now claim no faith for themselves. And that was a very stark picture for us as we were crafting a vision for a youth ministry that would have some lasting effect. As Jesus said, that there would be fruit and fruit that lasts. So yeah, we've got, we've got the same experience as those of you who are asking this question. And I think the Bible has a very clear response to it. So John addresses this in 1 John chapter 2. He says, They, those who have left us, those who have left the faith, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belong to us. He's very careful about how he's worded that, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a rhetorical device, three layers, to tell us a very emphatic point. He's saying those who have left the faith, those who are now going out and, and, and are enemies of God, who were once with us, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. Why? How does he know that? Because he believes point one. If they had belonged to us, they would have persevered. They would have heard the warnings of Scripture and stayed close to Jesus. They would have prayed, Father, hold thou me up. 
But because they didn't, because they didn't persevere, because they didn't remain with us, their going showed that none of them really belonged to us. And so I think the Apostle John's answer to that question is that those, if they persevere in unbelief, prove that they never really had belief in the first place. Jesus speaks about these people. Remember in the parable of the sower? In Matthew chapter 13, he said, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. That's the point. The soil is shallow. The plants have no root. There is no persevering root. It's all surface. There, is, there, there are powerful cultural influences that cause people we know to stand up the front and raise their hands during a song or even to confess Jesus as Lord even when there's no root. Even when there's no root. If there's no root, then there's no life. If there's no root, then there's no perseverance. Now, we don't live with a clear view of eternity. We don't know perfectly who's going to persevere and who isn't. And so one thing I want us to be very clear about is that we don't go out of here and look at these people we know who were once here and now not here anymore. We don't look at them and, and say, well, now they're just on the train to con- condemnation because one of the, I think one of the, the paradynamic passages in Scripture for Christians is Jesus' other parable, the parable of the lost son, right? There are many, many, many people, some of them are your sons and daughters, who are prodigal sons. If you pause that parable in the middle, that dude is lost, right? He has spent everything on booze and prostitutes and he is now feeding pigs the worst thing a Jew could ever do and wishing that he could eat what they're eating he is done but the story doesn't end there does it the story ends with him making his way back to the father hoping that maybe he might just get a place as a slave in the fields and what we see is a father who runs Something no, no uh, mature Jew would ever do. Runs down the road to embrace his lost son. Robe on his back, ring on his finger. Calf slaughtered, party had, right? That's the nature of God. It's always to run and meet those who come back to him. Yesterday, we celebrated my dad's 70th birthday. We had a party, and something that struck me as I looked around the room, was that a a lot of my dad's friends, I remember clearly a lot of my dad's friends who were there, wept, wept with him over me, the state I was in 15 years ago. 
And some of them got angry and let me know precisely how much I was breaking my dad's heart with the way I was living. Some of them warned me against the condemnation that would come. Others just cried with him and sort of, I guess, had probably given up hope. And every indication, if you looked at my life at that point, every indication pointed to condemnation. There are many, many among us who are prodigal sons not yet come home. And so James gives us this great exhortation in James 5. He says, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Don't you want to be that person? You want to be the person who who ushers someone back into the fold? That's, That's God's nature. Jesus says God is the kind of God who leaves the 99. He's going to leave you guys who are persevering. He's going to go after the lost one, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. That's God's nature, and we get to participate in that. Again, God uses means to bring people back, and he wants to use some of us. He wants, to be, wants us to be that person of peace who goes to a sinner and turns them from the error of their way. Sometimes that means communicating bad news before you get to the good news. I have trembled on a few occasions as I've looked someone in the eye and said, if you continue in this sin, you will be condemned. It is a a weighty thing to call someone back from the brink. But it is a beautiful thing to usher them back into the fold. Get into that kind of ministry. All right. Be encouraged. Be careful. Be warned. Now, be alert but not alarmed. I think it was John Howard who coined that phrase back when, I think it was when when this whole kind of terror thing reared its head after 9-11. Man, we just heard this morning about another, something else happening in London, on London Bridge. And what our governments often tell us is to be alert but not alarmed. They don't want us to panic. They don't want the fabric of society to be torn apart by these individuals. But they do want us to be alert. And that's what I'm saying. That, that's, that should be the colour of the Christian life. Alert but not alarmed. Persevering but not despairing. Be alert but not alarmed. To persevere, we must work hard by God's grace. I want us to hear that really clear. That's not a contradiction. That is a biblical tension. That should just be your life as a Christian. You must work hard by God's grace. 2 Peter chapter 1. You guys have done good. We're about there, okay? So stick with me. He says, 
For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. He says something scandalous here, right? Make every effort. We just said, we just sang a song that said 655 different ways that if we are saved and if we are kept saved, it is by grace and grace alone, right? And Peter says, make every effort. And for some of us, that's a bit jarring. Like, I thought we believed in salvation by grace, not by works. I remember reading this great thing. I think it was Dallas Willard who said that grace is opposed to earning, not to effort. Grace is opposed to earning, not to effort. Do you get that? We do not earn our salvation. Grace and earning, mutually exclusive. But grace is not mutually exclusive with effort. By God's grace, we will expend ourselves every day with every fiber of our being to persevere. And he just fleshes out what perseverance means. It's about faith and goodness and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and affection and love. All of these things we are called to make every effort to live in and walk in. And so, we must be alert but not alarmed. We must work hard to persevere by God's grace. Paul makes it really clear, this, this way, this beautiful way this works, with our effort, fueled by God's grace, he makes it really clear in Philippians 2. He says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. This is what I want for us this morning. Too many of us have spent too long in the Christian life with no fear and no trembling. And some of us have been part of churches whose whole kind of Obsession is to make sure we're not fear, fearing or trembling. And Paul says, you need to work out your salvation. You need to work. It is work. It is hard work. And you work it out with fear and trembling. Fear at the warnings that God so clearly gives us against falling away. Trembling at the thought of falling into the hands of the living God. Work, 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 effort, straining, striving, persevering. Verse 13 comes in and rescues us from despair, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. The point is this, if you hear this message this morning and you spend the rest of your life persevering, 
then it is a result of God's grace enabling you to persevere. Will you persevere apart from the working hard? No. Will you work hard without the persevering grace of God? No. It's a beautiful union of God's grace and our work. That's simply why James said, there's no such thing as faith without works. One more passage from Jude. Jude 20 and 21 and 24 and 26. On either side of these two slides, you get the whole picture. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up, make every effort. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Pause it there. Build yourself up. Keep yourself in it, right? This is on you, Jude says. This is your responsibility. How many of us spend great swaths of our time building our bodies up? There is a gym on every corner. There are way more gyms in Caroline Springs than churches, right? There are a lot of us putting a lot of effort into building... Oh, obviously not me. You don't have to, I saw that judging look. <laughs> One of the reasons that we are compelled to go and sweat in a gym for an hour and a half is because we've got a mirror and we see just how pathetic we are, Right? We see that scrawny little body or we see that obese body and it's this constant reminder, I need to work. What we need is a mirror for our faith, right? We need to be able to look in the mirror and you do this through just getting some time in silence and solitude and reflection and prayer and scripture reading. That's your mirror. And you see, you can just see that how pathetic your faith is. And that will be the motivation to work out, to build up. You, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Save us from despair, Jude. Next slide. To Him. To him, not him, not, not the pastor, but to him, to the Lord Jesus, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Do you get it? That's perseverance. Be encouraged. God's people will persevere. Now remember what all what that entails. The blood, the sweat, the tears. God's people will persevere 
in faith. You can be assured here this morning. And your assurance is ongoing as you experience God's enabling perseverance, the fruit of our obedience. So be encouraged. God's people will persevere in faith. Go to number two. Be careful. To persevere, we must not stray from the gospel. You might have been here the last few years and you're thinking, I wish they would just shut up just one week about the gospel. And we will not. We must not. We dare not. It is that very thing which is tethering us to eternity. Number three, be warned. To persevere, we must live lives of holiness. If you're sitting here this morning and you are persisting in habitual and ongoing sin, you need to hear the clear and stark warnings of Scripture that you will not inherit eternal life. There is an ongoing, persistent and habitual sin which hardens our heart to the point that we cannot repent anymore. There is an ongoing sin that will harden us to the point that we just will not and cannot receive God's mercy. Now you need to see this church as a collection of lifesavers who are willing to come and grab a hold of you and drag you back from the brink. If if you, I know this is going on, but I don't care. If you, if you are trying to live a persevering Christian life and you have no accountability with anyone, God help you. Because the accountability of Christians who love you is another one of God's means to persevere you. If you don't have some kind of software on your computer that either blocks you from looking at pornography or tells someone else when you look at pornography, God help you. You're more holy than I am. Some of us have spent too long persisting in sin and not experiencing the terror of falling into the hands of an angry and vengeful God. Be warned. To persevere, we must live lives of holiness. Let me just catch this last one. This might be in the Q&A. This does not mean being perfect, obviously. There's only one perfect man, Jesus Christ. This does not mean living perfectly. It means that when we fall, and we will fall, probably before the end of this service, when we fall into sin, we run back to God. We run. Hear this. One of the measures of whether you are a persevering Christian is when you fall into sin again, when you go to pornography again, or whatever it is. That's just an easy one to hit. But whatever the habitual sin that you're experiencing is, when you do it, how quickly do you run back to him? Do you listen to the voice of Satan himself who says, not this time, you're done. He's not going to forgive you this time. All the blood's run out of Jesus' veins. You're done. 
Do you listen to that voice? Or do you have a picture of a father who is willing and ready to run down the road to meet you? And you run to him and throw yourself on his mercy. How quickly does that happen? Some of us believe more in the power of self-recrimination than of grace. So run, run, and be warned. Number four, be alert, but not alarmed. To persevere, we must, must work hard by God's grace. Be quick. Sure. Because I'm conscious of the time. So. Sure. Jono, how do I know that I am truly sealed in Christ? How do you know? So, obviously, we, we will know in black and white terms at the end of the age, sheep, goats, it's very binary in Jesus' parables. Um, in the meantime, um, we, I think the question you need to ask yourself is, who, who am I trusting? That's a good question to ask. Who am I trusting? So everyone just needs to ask themselves the question now. What, how do I know I'll wake up tomorrow as a Christian? If your answer to that question is because I've been to church my whole life or because I do a quiet time every day, then you're off, off base, all right? The answer to the question, why, why will I wake up as a Christian tomorrow, is by God's grace. So what are you trusting in? I'm trusting in God's grace to preserve me, persevere me. Mm. Um, Jesus also talked about in um, Matthew 7 about a tree and its fruit. So you'll know them by their fruits, he says. So what are the fruits of the Spirit that you are, are manifesting? What are the fruits of belief and trust in the gospel? Mm. Um, yeah. Second question. Jono, I feel like I have shipwrecked my faith. What do I do? Oh, um, come, and talk to, come and talk to one of us. Um, if you feel like you've shipwrecked your faith, don't, don't sit with that. Um, I, I would see a, a glimmer of hope for you in the fact that you have recognised it um, and, and people who are utterly lost don't care. Um, but it seems like you've got some concern mm. for your state, and that's a good thing. Um, and I would say, cry out to, to your Heavenly Father. Cry out and ask Him to, to call you back. He's going to do, do that. He promises never to drive away anyone who comes to Him. And then He's going to do it through means. So keep going to church. Get involved in a small group. Avail yourself of His means of grace. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but 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 don't don't just leave it in a public Q and A. Like come and yeah, talk come with and us. chat to us. Yeah. Is it fair to say that if I'm deliberately continuing in sin, that I never was truly sealed with God's will? Uh, if you if you persevere in deliberate and habitual sin, then you reveal the fact that you were never saved. Yeah. If you have no desire to kill sin whatsoever and be made more like Jesus, you are not a Christian. Yeah. Um, how do I go about growing in holiness? Avail yourself of, of the means of grace. So, like we said, come to church, 
get into the sacraments, read the word, mm. pray in the spirit, have accountability. Like all of these, these are the means. These are what God's given us and they actually work. It's not yeah. a Sunday school answer. They actually are the things that will grow you in holiness. To grow in holiness means to grow more like the Holy One, Jesus. So you, you do what he did. Mm. Yeah. I think one of the best answers I've found is that, so Zacchaeus is a story from Luke 19, he's a little tax collector, right? He goes to the crowd, he's like hated by everyone, he's too small, can't see the crowd, and so the story says that he went to where Jesus was going. If you want to be growing in holiness, be made more like Jesus, go to where Jesus is going, right? Go to his word, go to him in prayer, go to him in his people, like be where Jesus is. That's, that's like holiness 101. Mm-hmm. Um, we might have answered this already, Jono, but let me just get this up again. Is it contradictory that I am sealed by God's will, but then I stray from the gospel? Uh, no. So here's the thing. You can be a Christian and backslide. There are all kinds of... I mean, you might have done this yourself. You, there, there are backsliding Christians. There are just no Christians who backslide into condemnation. Um, so... You can wander away from the truth. You can stray from the gospel. It can become less precious to you. You can, you can do all kinds of things. The, the question is, are you, are, you, are, you, um, are, you, are you annoyed by that? Does it unsettle you? Mm. Or is it just like, whatever? That, that, your affections in that case reveals whether God is at work in you or not. God, God will work to call you back to himself. He will agitate you. He will use someone in this church to call you out. And your response to that person is either to say, get stuffed, or to crumple up in dust and ashes and ask God to forgive you. That, that determines really what you're standing before God is. It's not contradictory. We do fall away. We do, we do backslide, but we won't utterly fall away. Mm. I think that's, this is one of, the, one of the sweetest things is God's sovereignty. Because if, if, you, if it was up to you and you could share prayer faith, you would. Yeah. Long ago. From the first beginning. You would have just, you would have done it, you would have cooked it, your ship would be under, you would be dead. But praise be to God who has delivered us from this body of death. It's good. Cool.